for those people that really want a career and want to get to the very top, you have to outwork everybody else. That's it. And, and I'm not saying it's going to be the longest amount of hours. It might be outwork with the best ideas. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey everyone, the show might look and sound a bit different today because we're skimming from three different couches. The skim is working from home for the time being because of COVID-19. Today, we're joined by a powerhouse of the music industry, Julie Greenwald. She is the COO and chairman of Atlantic Records. During her time in the business, she's helped advance the careers of Bruno Mars, Kelly Clarkson, Ed Sheeran, just to name a few. Julie, we're really excited to have you with us today. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. Thank you for having me. So Julie, we're going to jump in and ask you to skim your resume for us. I went to Tulane University, uh, graduated in 1991, and then I did a program called Teach for America, where I taught in the Calliope Projects. And then I started working at Rush Management with Lear Cohen as Lear Cohen's assistant from 92 to 93. And then 93, I got moved over to Def Jam Records and became the promotions coordinator. And then from 93 to 99, worked my way up at Def Jam Records. And then in 99, took over Island Records and became like the head of marketing for Island and Def Jam. And then I'm not quite sure when I became president because now it's starting to get fuzzy with my dates. But I do know in 2004, I came over to Atlantic Records. And then I've been at Atlantic Records since 2004. Julie, what's something that is not on your kind of official bio that we should know about you? I don't think I officially put down that I am a mom with two kids, but that is probably my most favorite part of my life is that I have a 20-year-old and a 16-year-old. That's great. I want to kind of just start with the elephant in the room that we're all dealing with, which is how to run companies amidst a global pandemic. The music industry is interesting because in some ways, you know, it seems like you have a lot of talented people who are at home in a moment of reflection in some sorts. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of good, hopefully, music to come out with it. But how are you thinking about this time? So for the artists that have been able to continue to give us music, it has been business as usual in terms of, you know, thinking of creative marketing and promotional opportunities for these artists to roll out their songs. Obviously, we're facing different challenges, which is, you know, the creation of music video, photo shoots, but we've sent artists green screens, we've sent them ring lights. And so we've been really just trying to keep everybody focused on the fact that the world is listening to music right now to help them through such a terrible time. And so many artists are giving us great music to continue out there. And then there are a bunch of artists that, you know, still need to get into a studio, need a collaboration. And and those artists, you know, we're just trying to be really good partners and friends to them 
and tell them that, you know, Hey, it's okay. Take this time, maybe just write in a notebook and try to just be as, you know, thoughtful and, and good partners to our artists that, you know, are staring at the fact that they may not be able to tour, you know, for the foreseeable future. And so we're just trying to make sure that they see the light too, that, you know, streaming has really offered us a way to share their art and their music and doing these live streams and social media that they can stay connected to their fans. I think we've been incredibly lucky in terms of all the businesses that have really been affected to be able to continue to, you know, market and promote during this time. And as a leader, how have you been trying to set your team up remotely and keep them focused at a time when there's so much uncertainty? So I personally jumped right in headfirst and I do a weekly email. It's a very personal email to my whole company every Sunday night to talk about, okay, we're about to start the next week, you know, week two and then week three. And I share my stories and I let them know that, you know, I'm in a house with two crazy kids and a husband and a dog who just got diagnosed with cancer and chemo. And and so, you know, I, I let them know that I too am going through, you know, challenging situations. And, and then I've also set up a time for every department where I call it either morning tea or afternoon tea where every assistant coordinator, manager, director on up gets an opportunity to see me on the screen and talk to me and ask me questions. So I can kind of let them know what we're talking about upstairs and keep sharing the fact that we don't know when we're going to come back, but it's okay because we're working and how can I help you? And, and really like let them see that they can, you know, individually email me, call me, FaceTime with me and that I'm right there in that canoe with them. I feel like I've actually gotten more FaceTime and more talk time with every person on the staff. And it's great because, you know, sometimes I sit in meetings where assistants and coordinators don't really want to speak. And now I think I've given them all a voice to feel really comfortable to talk with me and ask me stuff or share ideas that maybe they didn't, you know, feel comfortable being in the big room because they feel so intimate. Um, I think people have gotten so much more vulnerable and more creative and more open with me. And so I actually personally feel like I'm going to come out of this a better leader because I've gotten so much more individual time with the staff. And I think the staff, from what I'm feeling back from their emails and their conversations, I think they're feeling like they're building a closer bond, not only with me, but their peers and other workers from other departments that they don't normally engage with because everybody is so, um, you know, talking regularly every day with each other. I want to go back in time. What did you think you were going to be when you were growing up? I had a very clear path. So I was always going to law school. I was always going to become a lawyer. My parents were involved in politics and always were involved in many philanthropies. And so when I went to college, I read about being a lobbyist. And then I was like, oh my God, this is definitely for me. I signed up to be Senator John Burroughs intern of Louisiana. I did, again, food drives and I volunteered at soup kitchens. That's why when I read about Teach for America, I was like, oh my God, I don't have to go to the Peace Corps. I don't have to leave the country. I could do good in the United States. And I interned, not interned, I worked at the Tulane Law School admissions office. I got in great with the Dean of Admissions because I was like, okay, he's going to write me a letter of rec to go to law school. And I was like, I'm going to, do Teach for America. I'm going to get this amazing hands-on experience um, because I felt like, oh my God, I could be either children's rights advocate or a women's rights advocate. 
I want to go to DC, be in politics. I'm going to do Teach for America. I'm going to go to law school. I knew exactly what I was going to do. When I took the summer job with Lior after Teach for America, I was, I took with me into his office every day, the LSAT study guide. So I'm going to, I'm going to pause you because who is Lior? Okay. So Lior Cohen was one of the founders of Def Jam Records and one of the most important people in hip hop music in terms of, you know, driving Def Jam Records and driving hip hop into mainstream music. And he's gone on to become the chairman of Warner Music Group. And then he went to become the chairman of YouTube Music right now. And so he's a major player in the music business. And so when I took a job as his assistant, it was just a summer job. So I could be in New York City and study for the LSATs and be near my boyfriend. I never really thought (laughs) I was going to stay in the music business. You know, I just needed something to help pay the bills. And he saw every day I had this LSAT book on my shelf and he was like what are you doing and I was like I'm going to law school and that's when he like yelled at me and he was like everybody who's a lawyer is miserable you don't want to be a lawyer you want to stay in the music business and that's when he said you know you should go to Def Jam my other company and learn another side of the business because I was on the management side with him and they moved me to the record side. I'm assuming growing up did you have any connection to the music industry? Not to the industry I did I did like music but you know, I just liked music in the car and music, you know, on the radio. And I didn't even know about the business. You know, I didn't know anything about it. Didn't even think it was an opportunity for me. Or I honestly never thought I was a creative type of person. I was always a great speaker. I always did, knew I was going to be a lawyer. That's what I thought I was built for. How did you discover that you had a creative side? Was it you that discovered it first or was Lior? So I was sitting in promotion meetings and I would be like, hey, why don't we do this, this, and this with this artist? And why don't we come up with this kind of concert? I remember with Onyx. Onyx was this rap band that we were trying to break in the early 90s. And, and they had a song called Slam. And at that time, we were getting a lot of um, heat from the government about our lyrics being too aggressive and our videos being too aggressive. And that's when they were first introducing the, we needed to sticker our product to say parental advisory, you know, on it. And so I did a whole concert in DC called Slam Censorship, where I brought in Run DMC and Onyx and Redman to perform in, in DC to say, you can't censor their music just because you're offended of what they're saying, but this is their life. And this is the stories that they are telling. You know, rap music was under attack, you know, in the early 90s. People were scared of it. And so I kept coming up with all these different ideas. And Lior was like, I'm moving you from promotions to marketing. You have great ideas. And then when they handed me the art department and the video department, that's kind of when I exploded in terms of, you know, brainstorming ideas. And it really opened up in me this whole other side that I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is fun. This is interesting. Back in the early day, we were a small company. You had to wear many hats. Just like you guys, when you started your company, I'm sure you were designing ad mats and figuring out your logo and all the kind of good oh, stuff. You know, yes. when you're a small company, you got to do 17 different jobs. And, you know, sometimes all of a sudden it, these things inside of you that you did not have become, you know, your passion. And you're like, wow, I'm kind of good at it. When I hear you talk about being at Tulane and you're like, yeah, so, you know, the Dean of Admissions for the law school was going to write me a recommendation. And then I'm an intern who has this kind of casual interest in music, but Lior takes notice of me. 
you say it so casually, but there had to be something that makes it so that these people are drawn to you or they see something in you. Is it a sense of fearlessness? Is it that you kind of knew what you wanted and you went after it? What do you think got you that foot in the door? So I I can tell you from a very early age, I've always been confident. I've always known I've wanted things. I wanted to get good grades. I knew I wanted to go to a good college. So I, I, you know, set myself on a path to be involved in a lot of organizations. I always, you know, knew that like I needed to work to move myself forward. I saw how hard my parents worked. I saw that they were involved in many things. First of all, I had the greatest role model of life. My mom was my dad's partner and they built a giant business. And she was also involved in many philanthropies, not just with money, but her personal time. And she seemed to make dinner like five nights a week. And she was the greatest cook and the warmest person. I had three sisters. And yet we all thought she loved us the most. You know, when you have a role model like that, I set my sights to, you know, be like her and to be, you know, a major contributor back to society and not just have a job, but also do some good in the world. You know, I always just wanted to do the best job for people, no matter if I was an intern or just a part-time job, you know, I always gave it 200%. And I knew my own work ethic was going to be the thing that propelled me forward. You know, I think the confidence that you're talking about has obviously propelled you forward. And we talk a lot about faking it till you make it on this show. And we've certainly done that ourselves. And I'm curious, is there something that you professionally have not been confident about? So I think, you know, listen, at the beginning, when I first got into hip hop music, first of all, I don't claim to be a hip hop aficionado. I haven't just loved the music and I fell in love with the culture and the art and the artists. I think I've always known what I don't know, and I've never been afraid to ask for help. And I've never been afraid to hire people that actually are better than me and are more informed or better educated, whether it's been in technology, social media, understanding the culture of hip hop or alternative music. So even when I don't know something, I'm confident I don't know it. And that like, let me surround myself with really good people that do know it. I mean, there's a lot of things I don't think I'm necessarily good at, but I know it. I know I'm not good at it. So I bring in those people to really help me get better and to learn from it. When you started off in the music business, you've been open about, you know, paying your dues, as I think most people do when they get into the industry. I think that there's been a lot of conversation about what paying your dues should look like and You know, when we interview people, especially young people starting out, there's definitely at times you can recognize the person that's just hungry and they'll do whatever. And then there are the people that are hungry, but they want to know what the job path out of that entry level position looks like. How do you as now the boss think about people starting off and what that path around paying their dues should look like? So I I definitely employ a lot of young people right out of college. And we have a giant intern program where we really try to make sure we're keeping an eye on superstar interns that could then become our assistants to work their, their way up. I don't fault anybody with ambition. And I actually appreciate people, especially young women that come in and sit with me and want to know what is their path forward. And is there a real clear 
path forward here. You know, so many people know my story, but I was at a very small company. So I had, I think, an easier time to move very fast up the ladder. And when you're in a very large company, it may not be as fast and it could feel a little daunting. And the one thing I want to do is make sure people know that you can grow here and that it might be a slower pace, but there is real opportunity to grow. And it's my job to make sure that the young people feel like I'm going to provide them with a path forward. So it doesn't bother me when people have ambition, as long as you know they come in and they're super respectful to their immediate bosses and their co-workers and they all understand that you know everybody isn't going to be the alpha but it doesn't mean those people aren't great and contributing to the company too i just want like a very healthy respectful workplace but as you guys know there's going to be people that leapfrog people that have been there much longer at your company because they're giving it two million times more and they have way better ideas and they're you know burning those hours and they're really showing you that you know, they want to come take you out of your chair. And like the one thing you don't want to do is you don't want to stifle that. You want people to feel like they can really thrive because they could be the ones that are going to add some extra thing to your company and make your company that much more better and valuable. I want to talk about bringing people along on a vision. You made the switch to run Atlantic Records. You helped define Def Jam. And then you moved to a legacy label to help rebuild an iconic brand. How do you bring people along with you without scaring them? (laughs) Oh, I definitely scared them. Oh, I'll never forget the first. When I came over in 2004, I left the number one label in the country. Island Def Jam was on fire. Jay-Z, DMX, Kanye, Ludacris, Ja Rule, Shanti, The Killers, Fall Out Boy, Sum 41, Hoobastank. I mean, we were on fire. Again, confidence is not something I lack. I came in and and I said to everybody, first of all, I had to meet hundreds and hundreds of people and I had to fire hundreds of people. And so I was a scary person because they knew I was deciding if you were going to stay or go. And so, you know, as I was meeting people, I was really trying to understand, are you about becoming a new culture and a new company or are you going to be gripping and are you going to be a problem for me? But how do you not create a culture of fear where it paralyzes people and instead motivates them? Because what I did was I got rid of a lot of people. I had hundreds and hundreds of people to choose from. And I interviewed a bazillion people. And I said, hey, because I had Electra and Atlantic. And I said, hey, I'm not trying to come over here and be the old Electra nor the old Atlantic. And by the way, I'm not trying to even be Island Def Jam, the company I left. I'm coming here to create a new company with a new culture. Are you down? And if you were down for this new mission, because honestly, it's going to be hard. iTunes hadn't yet really taken off. Namster was thriving. People were scared for their jobs. And I was like, listen, I will lead you to safety, but I need you to, I need to know that you are not going to be gripping and that you're going to be down to do things in a new and different way. And that we are going to be a company where it's all about artist development and signing great artists. And however long it's going to take, it's going to take. And I'm patient for greatness, but I need you guys to be patient and understand the hard work it is to start over and really come along with me. And based on the interview, you know, if you were down and I really felt it, I kept you. And if I felt like they were like looking at me like, oh, you young 34 year old, you don't know what you're talking about. Then I said, you know, I'm going to let you go. And when we started, 
you know, I let people know, like, listen, I have a vision for this place. I want to hear people's ideas. And I had an openness in meetings to like, hey, I don't know everything. Give me your marketing ideas. But I was also very vocal that if I thought the idea was not a good idea, I said, no. And that's what leadership is, is having a vision and driving it and, you know, being open to people helping you with the ideas and the creative. But when things don't feel right or smell right, you also have to just, you have to assert yourself and not be afraid to say, no, we're not going down that path. This is how we're going to do it. And I outworked everybody. You know, it's like I was in there morning, noon, and night showing everybody what my commitment was to the artist. And then I was taking this very seriously. So no one could be like, oh, she's an armchair quarterback. I was in it. And they saw in the meetings that I, I really wanted creative thoughts. I wanted a creative company. I just didn't want to do it the old way because the old way was getting put out. And it was this new time called digital music. iTunes was this new thing. And that's why, honestly, Atlantic Records was the first company to cross the digital divide. We were making more music, more money from Apple than we were physical. And that's because people came along with me and were not afraid to embrace this new thing called Apple. And then when streaming happened, my company was the first company to actually make more money from streaming than digital. Because one more time, we embraced streaming. We were like, how do you market to it? How do you market around it? And how do you market on the platform? I've always been interested in the, yo, what's out there and how can we be better? Because our job is to Lewis and Clark it for our artists to go back and educate the artists and show them there's this promised land over here and this is how we're going to get you to safety. When you talk about that period where you're starting off building Atlantic and it's going to be a new vision and you also have the chance to build a different culture. You said you didn't have a personal life for a long time. And, you know, you talked about wishing that you had taken a a longer paternity leave. How do you think back on what you've built in the culture to date and now having the opportunity to be both the boss and the mentor? What is your advice to people in that position who are trying to find what works for them? Well, I I definitely am way uh, more sensitive to young parents who, you know, are just having children or starting their families. And I'm really encouraging them to make sure that they don't miss out on so many of life's wonderful moments that I missed out on. You know, I look back and and that's the only part that I regret is like that, you know, I chose so many times to stay at the office and not go to a soccer game or go to a volleyball game because I didn't reschedule a meeting. And, um, And so I definitely am way more sensitive to folks to say, hey, you you have a cell phone, you have a laptop, you know, go home, go be with your kids, and then you can finish your work at night. Because obviously we need people to not fall behind. And, you know, our artists count on us to deliver and do what we need to do. They don't want to hear that we left the office at five o'clock because they work different hours than us. I let people know that it's hard. I let especially the women know man, it's really hard to juggle it all. And that there's no such thing as balance. Stop striving for balance. Just do the best job you can and give yourself a break every so often and stop beating yourself up. But, you know, for those people that really want a career and want to get to the very top, you have to outwork everybody else. That's it. And and I'm not saying it's got to be the longest amount of hours. It might be outwork with the best ideas. It might be having the best relationships to move talent. 
about working smarter. Exactly. You got to out hustle people because that's who gets the ring at the end of the day are the people that are putting points on the board and showing they're the most valuable. You know, that's why it's really important that if you want my chair, come for it. You got to come for it because if there's one thing I learned is no one gives you anything. You got to really create your own path in this world. You are not only in the music industry, you're also in the talent industry and you have to manage a lot of different personalities and artists one of our ambassadors had a question that I actually was thinking about. So thank you, Catherine F., for asking this. But how do you give honest feedback to people and artists who are typically, you know, stereotypically surrounded by yes men or yes women? So I always felt really good about my role because I was never on the artist payroll. And so, you know, I always felt like they knew I was coming from a different place. And I just, you know, felt like, they knew always where they stand with me. When I would court them to sign them, I always say, you're never going to meet a more honest and direct person than me, but it's always going to come from a place of love and wanting to just see you have a career and a future. If you establish that from day one, from the first moment you have to deal with them where you see a video or a piece of art or a song and you say, ah, you know what? Like, I like the song. I don't love it. I think the video is just okay. I think you could have done better. If you don't bullshit them from day one, then they understand the relationship with you. You know, this is the thing. If you remember, you have this opportunity to really get in with an artist from before they were famous to after they were famous. And so you set, you know, the tone of what your relationship is going to be. And so when you have a very honest and direct relationship with them from day one, even when they turn out to sell hundreds of millions of albums, they still know I'm that exact same person. I haven't changed. For me, I'm in a business where there's no right answer, right? Music is so subjective. And so there's always the, it's just my opinion. And I'm giving you my opinion with love, respect, and as much knowledge and information that I have about the situation. But it's my opinion. And at the end of the day, the artist needs to make the ultimate decision of what they want to do. But they always know where they stood with me. You are one of the top players in a traditionally male-dominated industry. What's your advice for specifically women who are trying to negotiate? And I ask this because when I met you, we were at a dinner and it was all talking about negotiation. And you were just so blunt and confident and it was really refreshing. It definitely gave me some confidence to think about negotiating in a, in a different way. When you're negotiating, you have to know what your value is. And listen, if you think you're worth, you know, a million dollars a year, but you haven't done anything to deserve a million dollars a year, then you're going to look crazy. You also have to know where you are in the career path too, and what you're delivering and how valuable you are. You have to understand the marketplace. You have to do your homework. You have to be informed. You know, we have a business where, um, at least in the music business, you know, there's a lawyer community you can reach out to, but you also have your peers and your friends that, you know, it's an uncomfortable conversation. And I don't think people necessarily want to share, you know, what rates are, but there is some homework and diligence that you got to kind of do if you're moving up the ladder 
just so you have an understanding of, you know, what the marketplace is going to bear. But if you're a superstar and you're not asking for it, then um, you're missing out. And you don't have to look at it like you're being obnoxious or you're being, you know, wrong in the matter. You just, you know, have to say, you know what, this is my worth and I'm going to go for it. But, you know, in so many situations, you got to be willing to put your neck out on the line. And you got to be able to say, you know, hey, if you're not going to take care of me, somebody else will. Or maybe this isn't the right industry for me. I'm going to go into a different business that will, you know, respect my creativity or this or that. But you also have to know kind of what the um, environment is. I just was having a conversation the other day with somebody about um, their contract. And, you know, timing is everything. And I was like, 20 million people are unemployed right now. And we're about to face the worst recession ever. And my job is to keep as many people employed and keep all my people employed. And so, you know, am I handing out giant raises right now? No, I'm trying to make sure everybody got Mm -hmm. gigs. And so you just have to understand what the environment is too, and be thoughtful about it. Because like I said, if we're going into a recession and you're standing there asking for a bazillion dollars, you might be out of a gig, just period. You got to be smart. You got to do your work, but you also have to know what your self-worth is too. But if you don't put points on the board, don't ask for it. Going to move to our lightning round. Julie, you're going to ask you rapid fire questions. You have to respond as quickly as possible. Are you ready? Yes. Morning person or night owl? Medium. <laughs> just a, a normal person? <laughs> yeah. No, it's crazy because the quarantine has turned me into a night owl. I was a morning person and the quarantine's turned me into a night owl because I'm obsessed with the Sopranos right now. <laughs> oh, are you watching it from the beginning or have you? Yes. Never- okay. Yeah. With my kids. Can you skim your nighttime routine for us? I make dinner. I walk the dog. I either, depending on the night of the week, play Monopoly or we watch The Sopranos until finally I'm exhausted at two in the morning and go to sleep. (laughs) Is there an artist that you've passed on that you were like, oh. So we had Post Malone and we ended up not doing the deal and I, every time I see him and hear his music, I want to kill myself. <laughs> we, we had, um, we just didn't end up making the deal. One of our ambassadors, Kyla S., wants to know, what is the most bizarre request you have seen on an artist writer? I remember um, I did have an artist that everything in the room had to be white. White M&Ms, white flowers, white candles. They, they were on this whole white vibe. Everything had to be this beautiful white environment. What is the best concert you've ever been to? Oh my God. That's, I have two, I have too many. I'll, I'll give you some of the, to- I'll give you three tops. Um, okay. uh, the Hard Knock Life, Rough Rider. Um, it was DMX, Jay-Z, Red Man, Method Man. The first giant hip hop concert that was insane. And everybody was exploding and we were just breaking down the barrier that hip hop is not going to be giant arena music. That's one. Seeing uh, Ed Sheeran play four nights at Madison Square Garden when we started off him and the guitar at the Mercury Lounge 18 months before that to all of a sudden we ended the cycle with, with like four sold out nights at Madison Square Garden. So much work and love. Um, it, it was an emotional, amazing um, night for me. 
and then um, and then probably Bruno Mars' first concert at the Bowery Ballroom when you just saw that this guy is going to be a worldwide global superstar. And it it became so clear from this one little show. I I was like, forget it. I knew it. I knew how big he was going to be. It was was unbelievable. Last question. What's your shameless plug? My shameless plug? Mm Mm-hmm. You mean for like one of my artists? No, it can be anything. I'm right now in such a uh, an interesting time in, in right now because of the coronavirus where I, I just want everybody to be kind to each other. Women especially can make this world a better place right now. I think when we, you know, are inside organizations and companies, I think we're super thoughtful. And I think we can make the world a better place right now because the world is so scary. We need to make this a better place and we need to be so much more compassionate, not only inside our organizations, but what we do at home and outside in our communities. Thank Thank you you. so much. Of course. It was nice seeing you. Hi everyone. We're trying something new. During this time of economic uncertainty, we want to take a moment to spotlight some new female founded companies. We've heard from many incredible skimmers who are leading small businesses, and we will be introducing them to you each week on Skim from the Couch. See the link in our episode description for how to submit yourself or a friend. I'm Dr. Sarah Feldman. I'm a board-certified behavior analyst, and I'm co-owner at The Helm ABA. And The Helm ABA focuses on decreasing problem behavior and increasing functional communication and improving quality of life for children and families affected by autism. So we do that by providing in-home and center-based therapy and supporting local school districts throughout North Texas. This year, we were celebrating our fifth year in business. We started as a small team of two people with $300 in our pockets. And since then, we've grown to a team of over 50 therapists and we serve 75 families. For us, when COVID-19 hit, we had literally just gotten the keys to our third clinic. And so At that time, we had to shift really from this growth mindset of how do we continue to grow and serve more kids and more families to how do we create some safety and security for the team that we already have. We really were dedicated to trying to figure out how to get our staff to stay as employed as possible. We were a lucky few that we were able to be considered an essential business because we provide medically necessary therapy for the families that we serve. We didn't have time to make it perfect. We just switched to telehealth for as many kids as we could and to provide that support. And then we switched back to in-home, which was our route. It kind of felt like you were taking 10 steps back, but we were also able to continue to employ as many people as possible. And we feel really proud because every family that's wanted services and every employee that's wanted to actually come to work has had a job throughout the whole time. For us, what can help most is if people take it seriously. We have a lot of kiddos that don't know how to socially distance. They don't know um, all the rules and regulations about keeping space or keeping their hands out of their faces. And the more that we all take this seriously, this is an uncharted territory for everyone and we have grace for one another. We're all doing the best we can. So if we can stay kind and stay home, and you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook to learn more about autism and how to support families uh, affected by autism. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch.
And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.